subject. <laughs> All right, good evening. Again, my name is Dave Smith, and uh, tonight's talk is going to be called Question Everything. Um, and uh, I'm really happy to have such a captive audience. <laughs> Very rare for me. <laughs> Most of the people I teach meditation to are in a jail or a drug treatment center, and they're usually not of... <laughs> so I really like the way George introduced the um, talk last night. So I'm, I'm kind of going to ask a lot of questions and probably not really answer too many of them. Um, for a couple of reasons, is I like to oftentimes... Um, tell the people that I'm in the room with that um, the last thing I kind of want to be right now is just another person who's telling you what to do or how it is. Um, so I mostly offer this in the spirit of what the topic is of, of investigation, of question everything, and, um, and even reflecting on the Buddha who said that you should even question everything he has to say until you know it to be true and useful for yourself. Then you'll know if it needs to be cultivated or abandoned. So, um, so the first question that comes to mind for me is, um, how do we hear the Dharma? You know, how do we receive uh, the teachings? You know, what lens or what filter or what kind of conditioning are we listening through? And even right now, as you kind of hear the words I'm saying, like, what... How are you hearing the words? Are you, you know, are you tired? Uh, did you have a, a good day? Did you have a hard day? Um, are you wondering why the person who's talking right now is somebody maybe you've never seen before or who wasn't here last year or the year before? Um, you know, how are you receiving the, uh, the experience? And so there's a, there's a lot of ways that uh, we can deliver the Dharma. There's a lot of ways that we can kind of offer. And so in the mornings, we offer instructions, instructing you on how to work with your attention and how to work with the experience. Sometimes we might be um, talking from an educational perspective of giving you some information that might be useful ways to look at it. My, my hope for this evening, as it being the midpoint of the retreat is actually to inspire you, to encourage you. So um, that's kind of my intention uh, this evening. And so sometimes it's just good to think about that. How do we um, hear and receive um, what's happening, what's being told, what's being offered? Um, are we looking for the stuff we agree with, the stuff we don't agree with, stuff we're not sure about? 
One of the teachers, uh, one of the few academic teachers I spent time with, Andrew Olinsky, said something to me one time that actually really made a pretty big impact on me. He said that when you come across a part of the Dharma or a teaching that you uh, don't understand or doesn't make sense to you, to not discard it, which is often the case. It's been my experience. I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense. It must not be important. But to kind of arrive in the attitude of mind that might say, I don't understand this yet. I don't understand this yet, but I'm interested in kind of understanding what's being offered or what's being said. And that puts us in that captivating, interested space of uh, reflecting or contemplating the information. So the other question that would make a lot of sense to me at this point is, what is the Dharma? What does this word mean? How does it feel in in our experience? What is some of the feelings or attitudes or perspectives we might have on it? For me, um, when people ask me questions, as often is the case living in the Deep South, if I'm a Buddhist or... What does that mean? And I mostly feel like I am a Buddhist. Um, but the word Buddhism, for me, doesn't really mean a whole lot. I don't really, it doesn't evoke a lot of inspiration to me. But this word Dharma really does. It's, um, of all the words in the kind of Buddhist lexicon or whatever, it's the word to me that is like the most... Um, I don't like to use this word, but I'll say sacred or meaningful. Um, Great consideration about it, a lot of care and appreciation for this term, the Dharma. And it can be understood in in a wide range of meanings. Uh, The meaning that we probably talk about most at Against the Stream would be the truth. The Dharma is the truth of uh, how things are. Sometimes the term is, uh, the Pali term is yata bhutan, which means as it is, as it is right now, how things are, or even maybe more accurately, how how things happen. What's the conditions that allow this experience to be the way it is, things as they are? One of my uh, favorite suttas in the canon is called the Noble Quest. And the Noble Quest is this moment in the Buddha's experience where he has just achieved his liberation. He has just become fully awake. And um, it's one of the few places that I've run across where he's actually kind of having a conversation with himself. And he says to himself, as he um, reflects on this dharma, he says, I considered this dharma I have reached is deep and quiet and difficult to see. It's hard to awaken to. It's quiet. It's excellent. It's very subtle. It's very hard to see. It's hard to see things as they are. And he goes on to say, 
that people don't see this because they delight and revel in their place. That we delight and revel in our place. And for me, this term place is the experience of their, that you've probably seen so much in your life and so much since you've been here, that I would rather be in a different moment than the one that I'm in. So it's just this idea of a place or a destination. Or if we practice well, if we practice right, if we do it right and we get all the lists learned and all the techniques mastered, that something's going to happen. And then we're going to arrive into this place that's going to be permanent and long-lasting. And, and, and we delight and we revel and we are preoccupied with the idea of this place. Now, it might just be an experience in meditation, or it might be a job, or a relationship, or... Uh, I love the generalness of the term place. And he says that those who delight and revel in their place do not see this ground. They do not see this dharma. They do not see this conditioned arising. They do not see the conditions that they're actually operating from. And then he goes on to say that those who do not see this are enthralled and occupied with greed and hatred and are living in a mass of darkness. And then he says they do not see what goes against the stream. Deep, subtle, so hard to see. And then he thinks to himself, this is not going to go down. Nobody is going to do this. Nobody is going to be willing. <clears throat> and he thought, if I were to teach the Dharma, it would be tiring and vexing for me. It would be. It would be a total pain in the ass for me to teach people about the Dharma because they're just not going to be able to see it. And then he says he was inclined towards inaction. He was actually inclined to not teach because he saw very clearly that this is something that is so subtle, so difficult, and so hard to see. And of course he decided to not uh, do that, and he did teach it. I think whoever you thank for these things. <laughs> <laughs> and then I like to think about this. I like to think about these years that have gone past, these 2,500 some odd years, and that actually I like to think that since the Buddha started teaching people, that every single moment of human experience somebody has been practicing. That in every moment, as soon as he had a crew of people who were meditating, going back 2,500 years till the moment we're sitting in this room, some person somewhere was breathing in and knowing that they were breathing in. So there hasn't been, and I don't know if it's true, I like to think this, there hasn't been a moment where there hasn't been a mindful breath taken. 
Uh, there hadn't been a moment where some human being somewhere was not considering this dharma. And if that had not happened, none of us may not even be here right now. I like to think about that being as it being true. So this is the Buddha's consideration, the noble quest. And I also like to extend the term and to think about it as the noble question. This idea of asking questions, this idea of questioning everything. And when I think about my life growing up in this culture, we're not a very question-asking type of people. We're kind of answer-finding What's the answer? Give me the answer. I came on the fucking retreat. What's the answer to my problems? Give it to me so I can have it. Take it with me. When I go home, I have the answer. What is it? You know, I would love to take a multiple choice test and have D be, gee, I don't know, but I'd like to find out. (laughs) Never taken a test with that option. And I think being on retreat, we're confronted with that question over and over and over again. I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but I sure would like to find out. (laughs) Maybe I'll write George a note. (laughs) George, what the fuck is going on here? And then George asks Noah. (laughs) And Josh, of course, knows. (laughs) And then we're back to the game of clinging and delighting and reveling in the place. And so we don't see it. We don't see this dharma because we're already preoccupied. We've slipped into that type of having, knowing, grabbing, place, final destination, finish, no more difficulty for me ever again, thank God. And we just don't get that. We just get more questions, you know? So then, you know, I push it back onto you to just reflect in your own experience of what was it that inclined you towards the Dharma? What was it? Who was it? Was it a person? Was it a friend? Was it a teacher? Was it a book? What was it that inclined you to start questioning how you're living your life? thinking maybe there's another way to go about this thing called life. What were the conditions? What was happening? And usually at some point, we got something 
maybe there was some faith or some confidence or some trust. Or maybe actually you saw this dharma for a moment or two. Maybe you actually dropped out of the craving and aversion long enough to go, hey, there's a whole other world going on below here. I often joke that the first mindfulness breathing in-breath I ever took was the best one ever. And I've been chasing it for 20 years. (laughs) You know, I was really in a bad place when I was introduced to the practice. And my mind was... The war, I wanted to get out of, I, my mind was just good old fashioned fucking sucked. And I, you know, I, you get the instruction that easy, the instruction that I totally take for granted now. Place your attention on the sensation of breathing in and know that you're breathing in. I hear that and I go, yeah, yeah, I totally got that. <laughs> but, and then the next instruction was when you notice that your mind wanders, just notice that and return back to your breath. And I maybe did that five or six times. And at one point I was like, holy shit, you can get out of here. I can get out of my mind for a moment. I so take that for granted now. You know? When was that moment for you when you just were like, this shit actually kind of works pretty good. <laughs> I don't have to think every thought that arises. I don't have to jump down every rabbit hole. And then we kind of enter the stream of doing the best we can to remember that that's true and that that's useful and that can be done. In the inner con man of the mind, that's just like, no, this thought is really so interesting. <laughs> and it's just over and over and over again. You know, so when did we access this? I ask you that. When did you get that sense of faith or confidence or this aspiration? As you all know, craving and desire and oftentimes get such a bad rap in this uh, practice. But there is this thing called Dhammachanda where the Buddha talks about this really wonderful, beautiful, wholesome desire for liberation. This aspiration for freedom. And if you did not have that aspiration for freedom, I would bet all of you that you would not have come here for seven days to look at your mind and (laughs) try to deal with this thing and put down your phones and your relationships and your jobs and all of the wonderful places out there that you can hang out and and become and have and cling to. Me and Josh earlier were talking about this term samvega, which I think we maybe both hopefully arrived at this idea that it's a sense of spiritual urgency. We see this dharma, we see the mind for what it is, we get this sense of urgency or the sense of like, I'm going to fucking do shit differently. And it can even evoke a sense of encouragement or enthusiasm of like, oh, this actually is possible. This isn't just a nice idea. Millions of people have been doing this for thousands of years. Why not you? Why not me? 
Why not us? So this, I love this sense of spiritual, spiritual urgency because it puts us in a place where we just really become open to the question. We become open to putting down the need to know or to have the answers or to be in the place and to become the right thing. We just really want to see what's it like in here? What is it like in here? And then we come to this kind of crossroads of what I like to call the wisdom of dissatisfaction. I was getting choked up when Noah earlier was talking about how he thought hatred was a noble thing, because I totally felt that way. That there was something about hatred that was, uh, that actually I should hate. And that actually, if I didn't hate a little bit, I was a total sucker. There was something protective about hatred. And mostly what I hated was the dissatisfaction of my life. That shows up in a wide range of experience. And so sometimes this idea of the wisdom of dissatisfaction, it can evoke two qualities. One is we can just become kind of depressed. And we can be like, what's it all for? It's all just do good. My knee's never going to stop hurting. I just know it is permanent for sure. And permanence does not exist in my body. Nice idea, not true. <laughs> or, if we don't become depressed, this is really where we become inspired to say, oh, actually, life is really hard. Life has been hard. Life is going to continue to be hard. I am going to take full responsibility for it. I'm going to do something about this. There's some strength in that. There's a quality of ownership in that, I think. Yeah, I'm going to fucking do this, man. I love in the back of the Against the Stream book where there's all the different types of things. Like, I'm going to become a spiritual revolutionary. I remember when I was reading that not too long ago and I was looking at all the requirements and I'm like, I'm the fucking spiritual revolutionary. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking go Dave, you know? Like, this is all right. You know? What else am I going to do? Find some place to be in that's going to be better than this one? It's kind of our two options, I think. So we hear all these different instructions and different lists and different talks and sometimes we can get kind of lost in it all or confused. And You know, really at the end of the day, the Buddha would even say he only really taught one thing, which was suffering and its end, which is actually two things. So it teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And both of these things are very elusive and strange and they come in such different varieties of experience that uh, it can get kind of messy. You know, so we sit in this room and we just look at the moments and just the question of like, am I, am I creating suffering in my mind right now? Am I looking for some place to be in? Am I looking for a, another moment that might just be a little better than this one? 
Moment's okay. Mm, not so sure. And we just kind of come up against that over and over and over again. And so then I like to just like start to widen the view a little bit of like, you know, how does meditation even appear to us? You know, I like to think of it as like, what is the appearance of experience? You know, what is the lens that we're looking through? How does experience appear? Kind of a good question. So one of the ways that I like to think about this and one of the ways I've learned about it is kind of to keep it a little bit simple is this term name rupa vinyana which just means name form consciousness. And it's kind of the Buddha's analysis of what the mind is or what, is, what are the elements that are in every single moment of awareness? What are the factors? And it just begins that consciousness begins the moment that an organ comes into contact with an object. So, you know, it's like... That's the object. You got these organs called ears. Go out and you hear the bell. And we have all these other... We have all these six senses and we're constantly being confronted and bombarded by experience. And it can be like, whoa. But the moment we come into contact with an object we get introduced to what George is talking about today. We get introduced to what, every time we come into contact with something, we feel a certain way about it. We like it, we don't like it, we're not sure. Every moment has this quality of feeling. It's in every moment of experience. Which is why it's such a great object of meditation because it's always there. And as we learn to become mindful or attuned to this feeling, also what arises or is, accompanies this feeling is the perception. We perceive things in a certain way. You know that was a bell when I rang it. You didn't have to think about it if it was a bell. Or you just Probably for most of you, bell, pleasant. That's kind of a cool bell. Maybe I should get a bell. <laughs> I wonder where you can get a bell. Probably can't get one at Target or any lame place like that. I probably got to go to like a cool Buddhist bookstore. I could probably get one on Amazon.com, but you know, I heard you're not supposed to buy shit on Amazon. <laughs> Perception, you know, it's just like, and then boom. How many things have you come into contact with that you just completely like? Perception is just there to. Explain. It's the mind's ex explanation of the current circumstances. It's its best ability. George talking about all the millions of bits of information. It's, in that moment, it's the, your mind just kind of races to gather all the information it has, and it just gives you its best interpretation of how things are in this moment. So perception is very inaccurate. The way that we perceive things. And so mindfulness does a number on allowing us to re-perceive things in a way that's much more accurate so we can see things as they are. And also what accompanies this perception 
is the term is sankara, but it mostly means like we're inclined to do something about it. We're motivated to act. This is what I call the to-do mind. You probably know about this, right? Mm-hmm. Gonna do this, gonna do that, gonna get a bell, making plans, to do, to do, to do, gonna do. And then the last factor that accompanies all of these things is this word that we use all the time around here is attention. This pesky little thing in your mind that's in every moment of experience called attention. And we're just mostly chasing around all day, right? <laughs> and so there's always an element of choice with, percept- with attention. We can choose what we pay attention to. We can choose to pay attention to feelings. We can even choose to investigate or explore what's the perception, the judgment, the comparison. These are all just perceptions that might not be true, probably not that useful maybe. In fact, I recently read a book that said the whole kind of game of mindfulness is to reorganize perception so that it is seeing things more accurately, more clearly. And so this was what we would call right view. The first factor of the Eightfold Path is seeing things clearly as they are so that our perception is more aligned with a view that is mostly accurate, more accurate. And also we don't, we have to be careful that we don't get too caught up in needing to see things really, really clearly because let's not forget what we're looking for is suffering in its end. And that's what we're looking for. So we might be wrong about some stuff. We might misperceive some stuff. And that's okay. But we're looking for where's the suffering? Is it coming through my perceptions, through my inclinations, through my feelings? You know, so we just come into contact with these moments over and over and over again. We kind of try to start to operate or find our way through this mental apparatus called consciousness. And the one thing about attention that I'll say that I think attention is a very important aspect of the practice. Attention from my experience, and you might have noticed this as well, my attention is interested in pleasure and interested in getting rid of pain. Mm-hmm. Somebody might have said this earlier today or yesterday. You might be catching on to this reality, right? And so this is what gets us in trouble. And we live in the ADD culture, the ADD world. And so sometimes I think the practice is how do we become interested in something that maybe we're not that interested in? Have you noticed how easy it is to pay attention to something you're interested in? How easy is it to watch TV? It's effortless. How interested are you really in watching your mind? Well, if it's going well, if it's pleasant in here and my body feels good, I'm 
are pretty interested in the meditation. If it's challenging or difficult or unsatisfying, I'm not very interested. I'm interested in trying to find that place again. Where else could I be right now? I'd be so much better if I was back in my house. Man, this is fucked. You know, like... <laughs> I'm really interested in not being here. <laughs> and then we suffer. And so what you've been doing, what we've been doing is trying to help you find and locate and sustain and hold and gather this pesky little thing called attention and locate it and put it in locations that we normally don't notice, we maybe aren't that interested in and trying to hold it there. And what we do in the afternoon at 4 o'clock is, in the morning we kind of work with locating and placing the attention. And in the afternoon we're looking for how are we holding that attention. Is, are we, is the attention being held with a lot like loving kindness and forgiveness and compassion and care? Or are we just kind of like chasing it around the room? Get the fuck back here! You know, just like, you know? And it doesn't take a whole lot of practice to see what's happening with that situation. And so the last question I want to unpack a little bit is, if all this is true, if all this feels useful, if we can kind of get behind what I'm saying, what I'm pointing to, how do we practice? How do we do this? What do we really up against? What do we really need to actually do? Really? And uh, there's three things that I would call as non-negotiable. It's my own list that I've developed called the non-negotiables. And the first one is this practice, this experience of embodiment, which is what you've been doing the last several days, whether you think you've been doing it or not, whether your mind tells you you've been doing it or not is irrelevant. If you've been sitting in this room for hours a day, you have been practicing embodying the body, the nervous system, the sensory experience. Gaining into and leaning into and absorbing into those features of your experience that you mostly probably overlook. Your breathing. Embodying the breath. One breath at a time. In and out. Deep and shallow. Controlled, forced or not. Embodying the world of sound of all the senses of taste, your feet on the grass outside. And this allows us to actually start to begin to open to the Dharma because now we're present, we're with what is actually happening for real, for real. I'm really breathing right now. My heart rate's a little heavy, a little heavier than I'd like it to be. But I'm here. So we, we learn how to embody 
And we have to embody a lot of unpleasantness, don't we? And we lean into it, we absorb into it, we hold into it, we do it. And then we embody the world of the emotional heart, the vulnerable, fragile, often confused world of the emotions, the heart. And you just have to sit here and feel them. And whether you notice it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether your mind tells you you've been doing it or not, you definitely have. What's it really like in here? And this is what is required. This is the first foundation of mindfulness. Body, breath, awareness. This gives us concentration. This allows us to drop below the ongoing chatterbox of the thinking mind. It gives us access into this world of the Dharma. And it's completely, totally non-negotiable. It has to be done. We have to learn how to be in here. And you've been doing it. And you probably know how hard it is. So we embody this experience. We come into contact with the appearance of this experience. And then the next thing, once we get the embodiment, once we learn how to embody experience, we learn how to open And George did a wonderful job this morning opening to the world of feelings. Oftentimes I think we feel meditation as being this thing where we kind of shut everything out and we want to have this private, privileged, kind of inner, pleasant, calm. But actually that's not what we're doing at all. We're actually trying to take this and blast it wide open so that we're letting everything in. We're opening We're receiving what's there to be received. We're entering an experience of being receptive. How do you receive experience, as I said at the beginning? How are you receiving these words now? I like to think of this actually as a generosity practice just fully opening the experience, the embodied experience, to just let everything in. Come on in. You're here anyway. Fuck it. You might as well (laughs) You know? It's also, I believe, a practice of renunciation, which often is a word that we don't use every day, but the definition of renunciation that I like most, that has been most helpful to me, is just not needing anything extra. Not needing anything extra. This moment will have to do. Good enough. Open, receiving, allowing. When you start to do this, you're doing this right now. You're opening to things that you probably have been avoiding or running from 
or not knowing you were avoiding or running from, and you're getting in touch with a sense of your embodied experience, maybe for the first time in many ways. So we have to learn how to do these two things. And they're, they're really skills and they're things that we practice and they're things that we can kind of take with us a little bit. And then we just kind of begin to learn how to do that. Remember that we can do that. So we embody and then we open, we embody and we open. And all of the instructions we give in the morning is all trying to just inspire and encourage and to try to just getting you back into those two things. And then, once we have these two experiences working or getting, understanding them, living from that place of presence, of actual presence, of things how, as they are for you right now, then we can start to investigate what it is that's happening. And, and the word investigation for me, is, I always think of it as like, I think of like, crime shows like CSI going to investigate my present time experience. <laughs> no, it's never really, it's like I have the same relationship to the word concentration that Noah mentioned. It's like concentration. It's almost like investigate. I'm like, ooh. I feel like it's like <laughs> someone's telling me what to do or it's my job. Or... So the word works. The, the other words that I think of is the one that I think is most encouraging is can you actually be fascinated with what it's like to be here with a childlike curiosity interested what's it like in my heart what's it really like in my heart I really want to know what it's like what's it like in this mind interested curious fascinated And this is tricky because we have to continue to supersede or to let go of, I'm really interested in shit being better than it is right now. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in pleasure and, and interested in getting rid of pain. And I don't know about you, but I've done some fascinating things to avoid pain. Some fucking amazingly elaborate I've gone to some amazing extremes. <laughs> Imagine if you took that same level of interest into this direct experience, what you might actually find. You know, my experience has often been that Sometimes the Dharma can take on this very chore-like quality, this kind of striving, trudging. I get bored. You guys get bored when you sit here sometimes? 
There's absolutely, you start looking around for shit to do here, there's actually nothing to do. <laughs> you ever find yourself reading the print on the toilet paper wrapper? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking give me something. <laughs> wow, the environmentally safe newspapers, uh, toilet papers made in Pennsylvania. <laughs> What's that show? That show, The Office. They're in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, that show, The Office. I wonder if this is the same. Anything. <laughs> Start becoming interested in, like, you really care what the salad has in it, right? You're like, I, I like cilantro. It was good. <laughs> Not too much, though. <laughs> so, you know, we have to be a little bit mindful or aware or guarding around where the interest gets pulled. <clears throat> so much more helpful to ask the right questions than to look for the right answers. An answer is usually just, for me oftentimes, just another thing that I cling to. How useful is information really anyway? It's only as useful, I believe, as our ability to apply it to these three non-negotiable practices of embodying, 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 when it hurts, embodying, when it's sad, embodying, when we want it to be otherwise, to embody. open continue to just like do this over and over again and then we got we start to see the subtlety subtlety is everything in life isn't it it's what makes a good song a great song it's what makes a good movie a great movie. It's what makes a good meal a great meal. It's what makes a good friend a great friend. Are these subtleties that we can describe. These little nuanced things that we typically overlook. You know, it's subtle. And to see subtlety, we have to continue to look for it. 
we can't just scan the mind and scan the awareness looking for the next hit of pleasure or the next way to get rid of pain. We have to. Isn't that true, though, about subtlety? Isn't it the, what makes things beautiful? Is there subtlety? Just that little thing that no, nobody else sees that we see. That's why we like what we like. That's why we are attuned and pulled into those people, places, and things that give our lives meanings because we see it, the subtlety in it. And we know. The people that we feel closest to, the good friends and the people that we really love, it's usually these little subtleties that we notice that maybe nobody else does. in the Buddha's own words I considered this dhamma I have reached is difficult to see it's deep it's attained only by the wise it's subtle it's rich it's fine and it's always there always there and sometimes I like to carry that around as a reminder when I'm looking for that other place to be and I'm like am I willing to be with things as they are (coughs) as it is in this moment and then we start to consider the right questions or the useful questions We continue to cultivate this process, this going against the stream of our conditioning, of our habits, of our greed and our hatred and delusion. And we continue, as my friend Vinny would say, leave no rock unturned. We start looking under every rock. Looking for the subtlety, looking for the end of suffering. So I offer this in the spirit of your investigation and encourage you to continue to question everything, all your perceptions, all your views, all your judgments, all of that which arises in the mind. Question it all. And when you know something to be true and useful, to cultivate that, to foster that. And when you see something that leads to anguish and suffering, in difficulty, abandon it and repeat (laughs) and repeat. Thank you for your attention.